Haven't you ever wondered? What else is out there? There's wonders in this world beyond our wandering. Hello, I'm David Kern. And I'm Ian Andrews. And welcome to this special Bibliophiles Close Reads crossover episode in which we are going to argue and agree and complain <laughs> and stand up for Rings of Power, the new Amazon Lord of the Rings series. Ian, this is going to be great. I'm like, I'm like not even sure where to begin. Yeah. But how are you, friend? I'm I'll start good. there. How are you? It's great. How to are see you your emotionally? Face. You likewise, but you. I mean, we've been texting, and you have been going through something the last. <laughs> I've been having few an weeks. Experience. This series came out, and it might be different than what most people think. Yeah, because the Lord of the Rings fandom is on fire. It's burning. It's burning to the ground. Yeah, it's this is we're this close to becoming. The cause of doom, not of Rings of Power, but of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Our house is falling. Our house is falling <laughs> before our eyes. I'm I'm like, I, I'm going through it, man. I'm having a tough time. Because first of all, because for the first time in my life, I, I, I would not call myself a Lord of the Rings expert, as I've said elsewhere on this channel. Um, I would. I'm a lover. I'm a lover of Tolkien. And you're a very knowledgeable amateur this. <laughs> You're right. I'm, an, I'm a knowledgeable amateur and I've never been put in a position before where I have to establish and defend my bona fides in order to have a conversation, which is indeed the situation not I found me. myself in. Not, on the internet. not with me. Not with you. Not with you. Just with the internet. With the internet. Right. <laughs> right this minute, the internet is literally on fire with, <laughs> with, I think, what we could only call vitriol. I mean, absolute vitriol over this show. And yeah, it was, it's yeah. bewildering to me, like, like full disclosure, I thought when I saw the, the first like screen grabs of the show being posted and they started building hype, I thought, oh boy, we're in for it. I mean, this yeah, here is, we go. This is gonna be difficult. It's a money grab. It's, right. you know, gonna be super politically correct for better right. or for worse. Right. Yeah. All the yeah, things I, you expect. It's the game, of the, the game of thronesification of Lord of the Rings. Right, exactly. And so I, I was comfortable with very, very low expectations. I'm still going to watch it because I'm interested, but I didn't figure it was going to be all that great. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I still think there are things they do well and things they do poorly. And we could probably have a profitable conversation about some of the misses that are present in this, right. in this show. Right. But the backlash has been so aggressive and in many cases so wrongheaded that yeah, I, think, I find myself I think maybe said, can, can we say stupid? We can maybe say stupid. Yeah, we could say stupid. I, and I, so I find myself I mean, having I to it. defend this show. And that maybe isn't what I would have done if I'd just been left to my own devices. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that some of the, the backlash, some of the controversy, some of the complaints, the criticisms come ironically from people who are complaining about things that actually are directly from Tolkien. Yes. So basically they're saying this show is doing this thing wrong and it's getting Tolkien totally wrong. When in reality, it's exactly what Tolkien is after. <laughs> we'll get into some of those things. Definitely. Um, then there are, there are definitely some, some, some things that the show um, doesn't do great, mm-hmm. but I don't think that there are that many of them, to be honest. Like I think at worst, it's a pretty good and pretty interesting and entertaining recreation of 
Tolkien's Legendarium and yeah. it puts you back in the world and worst case you're getting to to think about the things that Tolkien cared about and spend some time in this world. Uh, if you liked the movies, it's going to feel the way those movies felt. It, feel, it feels a piece of that. It feels like we're getting the continuation of that story. Mm-hmm. And you and I both have varying mileage um, like for the movies. Um, I like parts of them a lot and other parts of them I find quite annoying. And I think you feel the same way and maybe not at the same parts, but this is not an episode to unpack right. that. We're not talking about Peter Jackson. Right. So what we're going to do is we watched the first three episodes that, and which yes. is the first three are the ones that have aired so far. Yep. Um, we're going to talk about those first three and some overall show notes, if you will. And then in three more episodes, so in three more weeks, we're going to do a quick check episode uh, on the first six episodes. Um, so the, <laughs> How is a quick it check episode of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Where are we after six weeks? Well, five weeks, I guess, because the first episode was the first week was two episodes. And then we'll do another episode at the end of the show, the end of the season. And we'll take stock of everything that we have seen what might be coming next in future seasons, what we think Tolkien is doing in his grave. Um, is he yeah, rolling exactly. over or is he dancing and so forth? So it'll be three episodes on this show and then we'll see where that takes us. There's a lot of podcasts out there by Lord of the Rings people that are mm-hmm. talking about it. Some are complaining about it vociferously and some are just kind of like, eh. But we have a couple things, I think, that both of us are, like the discourse has been annoying both of us. Yes. Um, We've been texting back and forth a little bit. And can you kind of introduce some of those things that are most bothering you about the discourse? And then we'll get into what is good and what doesn't work so much about the show itself. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Um, The thing about the discourse over this show is that it touches so many different aspects so many different topics that it's really difficult to like pin it down and summarize. Um, you've got <laughs> political backlash because of the presence of people of color in a world that was, you know, written by a white Northern European about white Northern Europeans. Um, except that's not true. Except yet. it's not true, you guys. But that's that's the argument. So, so there's political backlash and like this whole phalanx of of not just Tolkien nerds, but then also just casual viewers from the conservative side of the spectrum who don't want politics, you know, pushed down their throats by the writers of this show at Amazon. And so who are either uh, watching with that in mind and hating everything they see or refusing to watch on principle. And still writing reviews. And still writing reviews, which is like, I can't, I cannot even. Don't write a review of a show that you have not seen. That's like article one of being a reader, dude. Like you cannot have an opinion about something you haven't seen. If nothing else happens in this podcast, we need to impress upon <laughs> the world that yes. you should not write a review of something that you have never seen. And you cannot write a review of something that is good if all you're doing is taking notes from someone who claims they have seen it, even if you haven't, even if they have seen it, right. their notes are not good enough for you to write a review over. Agreed. And I don't know if what I said made sense. What we're not saying is you have to watch this show. There's a lot of television out there. And there are a lot of great books and you can't engage with every single piece of art that comes out. And if you've decided you don't want to watch the show for whatever reason, great. find more power to you, but yeah. then you can have We're an not opinion talking about the about Iliad it. or like the Lord of the Rings books even. Right. Exactly. You just can't both decide to never watch it on principle and then go to writing reviews. Not fair. Not intellectually right. honest, I would say. So that's the, that's one category of the debate. Another category of the debate is Lord of the Rings nerds 
who um, who base their knowledge of the story on the films and maybe haven't even read the books in the oh, that's not you in the legendary that's not you that's not me um and there are lots of those people there are people who are comparing this show to peter jackson's trilogy and finding it wanting for a whole long list of categories <laughs> in that realm <laughs> then you've got the people that have read the books even a handful of times mm-hmm. and who are griping about the timeline and are griping about galadriel's character which is maybe the biggest gripe i've heard um and, 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 and then that's where i want to spend time i think and the Harfoot, of course we've got Harfoot beef. Um, did you see Neil Gaiman's tweet? I didn't. Somebody goes to Neil Gaiman, which I think is funny on its face. Like they go to Neil Gaiman to like adjudicate this discussion about Lord of the Rings, yeah. Rings of Power. And Gaiman's yeah. like quotes Tolkien in a letter saying the Harfoot were darker of skin than all other hobbits. <laughs> He's right. Like, yeah. Case in point. <laughs> I don't okay. Let's, this let's, can we just, can we just knock, can we just start here then? I know we want to talk about Galadriel, but let's do this Harfoot thing. Yeah. Because I, I don't understand. There's some there's some Reddit stuff about people saying the Harfoots are cringy and stuff like that. I think it's one of the best parts of the show because now you might disagree with me on this. I'm because on, on one hand, Tolkien specifically talks about, he had, I think, a poem about this and he talks about it in his letters. The Harfoots, the hobbits before they came to the Shire were a nomadic people mm-hmm. that were, as you said, darker of skin. Yep. That were more like um like a medieval troop of wandering gypsies than they were the civilized folk uh, yep. that care about gardens and good food and tobacco that we see by the time the third age comes around when when the books take place and Peter Jackson's movies take place and so forth. So to me, what you're getting at here is the is you're like it's like a pre-civilization people yes. that are that are they're like it's all about their customs it's about like figuring it's about survival it's about finding a place and i think that their kind of like oddities fit what tolkien seemed to be going for there sometimes it's a little goofy i think the um you know there's there's a bunch of theories about people who who literally drop in out of the sky and we can talk about that in a future episode right. i think we'll probably have to save um i would the, save the, that yeah yeah we'll save that for when when the show begins to reveal more uh, I know you and I both have theories about that. Um, but <laughs> the Harfoot thing is just not something that, like, we have, we're, it's not something that we're far enough in for me to be able to say, let's, com- let's complain about this because it, it's, you can see the seeds of what they're doing there creatively are all from Tolkien. Yes. You can say, okay, like maybe they tweaked it a little bit too far or whatever. Yeah. But like when you read, when you interpret something, you're interpreting something and then trying to make it intelligible and experiential for a new audience. Okay. So, let's, so let's, I have no complaints about the interpretation of what they're doing. Like maybe some of the portrayals, but not them. Like it's, it's the seeds of it are in Tolkien. Agree. Yeah. A hundred percent. Absolutely agreed. And this is the, this is maybe the thing that bothers me the most about all of the discourse that I'm seeing. And again, I'll, I'll call it vitriol, like all of the hate and the mm-hmm. trolling that's going on about the show um, is I think it's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what good criticism is. And by criticism, I mean, engaging with art critically, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to, in order to, to uh, understand it and respond to it, et cetera. Um, good criticism is not c- criticizing a work of art. Good criticism is understanding it all the way down to the bottom, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, it's not just to pan something. It's actually to, if you'll permit me the expression, stand alongside the author of a work 
and say to him, I get you. And then turn to your own reader and say, I'm going to help you get him. Right. I'm going to give you a lens to look at this story mm-hmm. through. And obviously I'm going to, I'm going to use my own artistic instincts to emphasize various things and my own take will come through. But the goal is to participate alongside someone who made this work of art in telling their story. And I mean, we talk a lot about film adaptations. You and I have together in private many times. Um, and, and sometimes not in private. And sometimes not in private. And like, I think what distinguishes a good film adaptation of a work of literature from a bad one is the extent to which the author is trying to do that, or the director or the writer is trying to do that, is trying to say, hey, yeah. here is a fresh take on this idea that doesn't get in there and correct or amend, but instead tries to make it clear. And here's what I'll say about Rings of Power. You're as far as I can this. tell, they are doing that and they're doing it in good faith. I don't yeah. think they're trying to rewrite or amend or correct Tolkien or his worldview or aspects of his legendarium. I'm satisfied thus far that what they're doing is taking details and coming alongside him and telling more story. And they're doing their best to stick to his tone. They're doing their best to stick to his major thematic emphases. And I don't, I don't have beef at this point. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the reason we're doing this podcast is because we're like, a little bit perturbed about the way the conversation is going. So yeah, uh, I think we're in agreement on that. So our, as far as the Harfeet, the Harfoots, the Harfeet go, uh, what's your, Harfeet. You, where are you with, <laughs> uh, where are you as far as they go? Like, do you agree with me? Yeah. I, f- I find them engaging and diverting. I, there's not enough storyline going on there yet mm-hmm. for me to be doing a whole lot more than waiting to get back to Galadriel and what's going on with her and the elves. Um, right. But I don't find them odorous or, and I, and I don't find them overall silly. Yeah. Like a lot of people seem to. I mean, if you like Mary and Pippin were extremely silly in the movies and, and they're even <laughs> fairly silly in the books and like Bilbo himself, like the hobbits are people of, uh, there are tiny people that have big feet and they're, that are hairy and they smoke a lot of tobacco and they love riddles and they throw they parties where they give birth. Like they're a silly people. Yeah. Like the whole point of the Lord of the Rings is that they are a silly, humble people who do things that are not silly or humble. Yeah. Um, like yeah, I, or at I least just, common. They're a common people, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah, I, whatever nobility comes out of the hobbits, doesn't come from a high style of mean, life. I, and I think maybe people mean use the word silly in different ways. So right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think I think I'm I'm in for the Harfoots thus far. The the Harfeet. Yeah. Harfeet. Proud <laughs> feet. Uh okay. So you want to talk about Galadriel? Yeah, we gotta talk about Galadriel. All What's right, the beef you've heard about Galadriel? Like what is what are the takes that have stuck in your she's too warrior like she's too rebellious. I've even seen she's not feminine enough. She is not elvish enough. She's too young. They screw up the timeline. She doesn't. She should be married for a thousand years by now. There's a lot of things. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've heard a lot of those, a lot of those too. First start, before we like kick off into this, I did some timeline math just to, to give people a vague notion. Um, so I love you so much. Yeah. Um, so by the time the Lord of the Rings... The original story that Peter Jackson's movies cover. By the time that story happens and she leaves Middle Earth at the end of the story, she's yeah. 7,190 years old. No big deal. Okay. No biggie. When they have set the rings of power, the easiest way to figure that out in the timeline is to look at what king is 
is on the throne in Numenor at the time, which we've already met, right? We've got a queen, Tarmiriel, on the throne in Numenor. She's about to get usurped, spoiler alert, by Arpharazon. So that's how we know where this story takes place. And that happens between 3177 and 3255 of the Second Age, at which point Galadriel is only 914 years old. So that should give you a little bit of perspective on why she's like a 10 year old in young. (laughs) Yeah, she's freaking young, man. She is young. And by the end of of our of our saga, she's very much not young anymore. Um, Right. So to the beef of her being too fiery and and not basically not graceful and serene enough. I give you an extra. I can't do the math quite that fast. Eight and a half thousand years of living. Right. <laughs> Mic drop. I mean, uh, a lot goes down in Galadriel's life between the Galadriel of the show and the Galadriel of. So of do you think then that the uh, messing with the timelines complaint in general about the show is overblown? A little bit. I do think so a little bit. Um, first of all, it's it's helpful to note that the showrunners have access to the original trilogy, yeah. to The Hobbit, yeah. and to the appendices to The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, the, they the don't have the Silmarillion. The and yeah. so, or the I, Unfinished Tales, or the other right. things that people have claimed that they do, yeah. Any of the attendant I, It's materials. a good clarification because it's been, it has not been clear throughout this discourse what they have access to. Yeah, I and found I've an interview. Confused too. I found an interview where they told they told the interviewer exactly what they had and it's the appendices. So I did I did a little comparison before this episode of the details we have from the Silmarillion about the fall of Numenor, which it appears the show is sort of building towards and the right, details yeah. we have in the appendices and those two timelines don't actually match up because this is all this is all taken from Tolkien's notes, right? It's he didn't ever sit down and write it. And so um, there's lots of different ways to to skin the cat when it comes to how we so, got here. So like, are you saying that Tolkien perhaps was still workshopping the timeline? And so yeah. to mess with it a little bit is okay? I think so. And the, the ways that they're messing with it make a lot of sense to me. Um, more or less, in order to make a show that's going to tie into the work that's already a pop culture phenomenon, right? Because we can't discount the fact that if this wasn't going to make any money, Amazon wouldn't do it, Right. It's right. a little commercial in its goals. And so in order to do that, they have to tell a story right. about Sauron, not about his his granddaddy, baddie, Morgoth. Right. And so, but by this time, Sauron's already been put down once by the elves, Galadriel included. And so right. for them, it makes sense to have Galadriel still single instead of married, because what they want to do is tell a story about the Galadriel that Tolkien gives us. And this is big. You should read that quote you sent me. From his okay. Letters. Yeah. I sh- I will have to hold. Okay. We. I have it right here. I have it right. Go here. ahead. Go ahead and read it. Go ahead and read it. Okay. Yeah. Right in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the other. I know the one you're talking about. I just don't have the exact words in front of me. Yeah. For sure. So this is one of the other beefs that that I have run across that really bothers the heck out of me. There has been, and I think rightly so, a lot of attention paid in reading the original trilogy to Catholic imagery in Tolkien's work. Um, mm-hmm. He was a devout Catholic. However, yeah, Tolkien right. despised allegory in all of its forms. And even though he couldn't help borrowing Christian imagery and he wanted to create a, a world that was spiritually consistent with reality, he wasn't trying to allegorize. And that's sometimes yeah, a tension right. for interpreters because people want to look at Galadriel. The Galadriel were given at the end of the third age when she's 7,190 years old and say, this is Marian imagery, right? Um, this is the blessed right. mother. And yeah. Tolkien himself didn't actually think that. And 
David dug this up and sent it to me, but this is from a letter to Mrs. Ruth Austin. Tolkien writes, I was particularly interested in your remarks about Galadriel. I think it's true that I owe much of this character to Christian and Catholic teaching and imagination about Mary. But actually, Galadriel was a penitent. In her youth, a leader in the rebellion against the Valar, the angelic guardians, at the end of the first age, she proudly refused forgiveness or permission to return. She was pardoned because of her resistance to the final and overwhelming temptation to take the ring for herself. And this is this is consonant with other things that I've read from Tolkien on this topic. One of his goals in writing Galadriel, and in fact, this is maybe the character that he spent the most time and thought on. He was yeah, continually yeah. working on her up until his death. And what he wanted to do was make of Galadriel um, a microcosmic picture of the story of her whole race. And the elves are a race that fall mm. from grace, defy their gods, um, and try to save themselves and their world on their own power and eventually fail in that regard and are in varying ways and in varying times accepted back into the fold pending some kind of repentance and change of heart. And so Galadriel is, is emblematic of the whole story of the elven culture for Tolkien. And so I think he would have a problem with us reading her exclusively as some sort of serene guardian of all that is good. If she was a saint by the end, she did not start as one. Exactly. And so looking at rings of power, I have no problem. I have no problem with the way that they're presenting, presenting her. It's very consistent with the story that Tolkien wanted to tell. Yeah. I mean, if you're just going to say, okay, so like they just shifted the timeline on her life. They put some things in different parts of her life. Like we can't, we can't say you're wrong. Right. But that's not how adaptations work. Mm -hmm. Like the nature of adaptation is that especially in a world this big and a timeline this long, you're you condense and you you find the bits of story because what Tolkien never really did is write one cohesive story <laughs> about these stories. You know, he didn't tell us this is how all these myths. things fit together. And so yeah, you're he you're taking this mythology that he that he created. And some cases he created by writing a note down. <laughs> In many and, and, maybe even most cases. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you're saying, okay, this is this is compelling. This is a compelling seed. This is a compelling idea. And we're going to try to flesh this out. And one thing that I really think that I'm impressed by with this, this particular series and these creators is they really do seem to care about the source. Mm, um, yeah. If they were given certain parameters by the powers that be at Amazon, then they did so. They they may have fulfilled those tasks. Maybe they said you have to have a certain number of uh, um, examples of people of color in it, right? Maybe you need to have, um, you know, a badass female character or whatever. Yeah. You know, maybe you have to have. Maybe they get this. You can spend this on this. That you can spend this on this. They may have had those constraints upon them. I'm sure they did because that's how the world works now. But and they and they probably did check those boxes off. But they found the most creative. Tolkien-ish ways to check those boxes. I and I think that we are in, I think we are in the hands of people who actually care. Now we're three episodes in. Let's see where we are this at the could, end. Let's this see. This could all turn could, right around. You and <laughs> I could no feel problem. very differently by the end of the season. We yeah. reserve the right to change our minds. Of course. But for like what we're talking about right now is the discourse and and the way the, the complaints that people are making and the way they're making them and the foundation of the arguments that they're making. Yep. And those these two things I think we both feel are just like, can we, can we give it a minute? Can we just give it a minute? They're not done. Can we see where we are? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I think these myths can withstand the complicated and perhaps even occasionally misguided choices of people who are doing their best. Yeah. Right. Like yeah, I, I think also, the spirit is there, even if the particulars are not. I would agree with that. And I think I'm based on the list, which I think I also sent you of scholars that are advising on this right. and the yeah. interviews that I've seen with the showrunners and the creators and the writers, um, they're all Tolkien geeks, all of them. I mean, they're in this because and sometimes they're in the family. Yeah. They want to tell Simon this, Tolkien. they want to tell this story. And they're paying, I mean, like the kinds of detail that they're putting into the costuming, for example, like you can freeze almost any frame in this and see sigils and crests. And um, I mean, it's, the detail is impossible. It's clear to me that they, that they care, that they really, really care and that they're trying to get it right. And even where they seem to be creating a character or some new place or event, I think that that I have a bunch of theories on some of these and I think that some of them will come, will end up being things that are familiar. Yeah, I think so, so too. Halan, Halan, what's his name? Haland? Uh, no, his name is Hal, um, uh, uh, Haldon. Haldon. Yeah. Um, I think I have a theory about him. I'm not going to say right now what I think it is, but I have a theory about him. I think it is compelling. I think it holds water. Maybe next episode I'll, I'll say what, it, what I think it is. I want to see a little bit more after we watch three more episodes. But um, I've told it to you. Mm-hmm. And so for the record, I told it to Ian. So if I brag about it later because I'm right, then Ian <laughs> I'll can know. I'll be able And to if confirm. I never say anything about it because I'm wrong, then Ian can make fun of me. Yeah, it'll um, be great. But uh, I just think that even where they're making some alterations or they're making some kind of an invention, they're going to feed back into things that are familiar. Yeah. Um, Here's another thing about that that I want to just dig up from the lore for a second too, is that... Um, in the material they have, like I said, in the appendices to the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, we have a lot more detail about the Numenorean race, their history, their succession, their lines of kings, and and their eventual fall than we do about the pit stops along Galadriel's seven thousand year journey. She weaves right. in and out of that story, and she's not necessarily central to it. Um, right. And so I think what they're doing that's really compelling to me is saying, okay, let's tell the story that we have. We have the story of the fall of Numenor. Let's do that. But let's also try and find a way to tell the story of the elves because Tolkien never wanted to tell the story of men without the story of elves. They were intimately, intimately connected. And so I think choosing Galadriel who doesn't have as firm a track written out for her through this particular period of, of Tolkien's history is a really smart choice. It makes a ton of sense to me that they would say, let's choose the character that Tolkien chose to hang his race on and yeah. weave her into this. It's yeah. good. It's good. It's good writing, I think. And from a, and from a storytelling perspective, it, it creates so many degrees of conflict and, and turmoil and complication mm-hmm. and also moral questions and quandaries because you have questions about the the choices the elves have made in the past and the and the the downfall of their relationship with the men of Numenor and the role of Numenor in the history of Middle Earth. It's you know Numenor is just like right outside of Middle Earth, right? Basically. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's in the Sundering Seas, right between Valinor and Middle Earth. And how can you like the idea of telling that story is so interesting. Like I can see why it's so compelling because it's between Valinor, it's between middle Earth. how is that not something that would draw your attention to it? Right. No kidding. And it's got this tragic fall, you know, there's something like 
so mythic and epic and Homeric, even like Olympian about oh, oh, that yeah. island. Well, it's Atlantean um, is to get real specific. Yeah, about yeah. It. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that's something we should talk about. So not just Atlantis, but Numenor itself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, well, you and I both have been kind of thoroughly enjoying <laughs> yeah. Numenor yeah. and Casa Doom, the recreation of these places. Um, I, it, they're just, you know, draw-dropping in their yeah. in their detail and in the way that they've captured it. And, and also, you know, been true to um, uh, bits and pieces of the book in terms yep. of things that are actually described in the books, which of course is only a few only things. Only a few, but yeah. Then also tying it back to things that we are familiar with if you've ever seen the movies. So the cause of doom stuff where you walk, like it's the, it's the exact same place just earlier. Yep. Like yep. it looks exactly the same. And that seems like such a small, obvious thing, but they captured it so alive. Mm-hmm. Given that it's, it's amazing. Okay, think about it this way. You've got a place that when you saw it last time was dead, yep. but was specific. Now they've managed to maintain that specificity and turn it from dead to completely alive. And that seems obvious, but it's so hard to capture. And I'm so impressed by by what they did with Cause of Doom and and and, and Dude, uh, this too. living, breathing Numenor. So you've got these two places that by the third age are are Ancient by, by, history. by like Frodo's age. They're done. They're gone. Yeah. And you know, they might as well be like Machu Picchu. Yeah. But this is Machu Picchu when it's alive. And like mm-hmm. they capture it so vividly, so beautifully. What did you like most about the of about those places, dude? For me, the the mines of Moria, which aren't they're Casa Doom, right? The the Dwarven city, the mirrors, the way they used light, because it was a direct mm. callback to Gandalf extending his staff over the chasm and Mithril beaming out of the walls, right? Like mm. just this, the way they use those mirrors to get sustenance down into the middle of the earth in the center of this mountain. And then there was yeah. greenery everywhere. And I was, I mean, it was yeah. jaw dropping. That was completely jaw dropping. Yeah. People are making like fun of the elevators and stuff. Dude, the elevators are in the movies out of here. They're in the freaking mo- just uh, rage. How do you, um, how do you think that they got the, like, has no one ever seen the mine before? No kidding. You use, the, uh, use a pole. They're just pulleys, dude. It's just pulleys. Come on. Come on. But then I I mean, Numenor is a fascination of mine that um, and I think it's supposed to be, frankly, like we're supposed to be awed by the elves. We're supposed to to feel about Aragorn. I went on and on about this when we did Lord of the Rings on on the Close Reads Network uh, last year or whenever that was. We're supposed to feel about Aragorn the way we feel about our king. Mm -hmm. That's the idea. He's the leader of men and you, the reader, are a man. And so you're supposed to feel about Aragorn like the king is coming home. And the same thing is true about Numenor. There's this calling back to an idea of what mankind was created to be, the nobility that mankind bears as created in the image of God. And Numenor has to have all of that. It has to have splendor and glory and majesty that is awe-inspiring. And they pulled it off. They absolutely pulled it off. Um, I don't know, frankly, I was concerned about how they were going to do this, given how impressive Minas Tirith was in the films um, and oh, how yeah. impressive some of the ruins were, like the falls at Rauros with those giant towers, you yeah. know, forbidding you to enter. Like mm-hmm. that was all in scope was so incredible that I thought, I don't know how they're going to top this. Mm-hmm. And the island city was every bit as every bit as huge and impressive. And from a, again, from a storytelling perspective, it's so brilliant for us to experience it from the perspective of the outsider. Yeah. Galadriel, who has seen beautiful things yeah. and is still in awe 
of what these men have done, even if she's a little bit, you know, feisty about it, a little bit testy. And then you've got <laughs> uh, this other this other guy that she's with, and he also he like comes from a completely different place, and so you have to experience it from the outsider. That's a great you point. You can't just all of a sudden have a new scene. You have to be introduced to it by the outsider. Yeah, that was really. I hadn't thought of that. That's really good. That's really good. And I think that it's important that Galadriel is kind of our entryway into a lot of Middle Earth because she's like, she she harkens like her heritage is not in Middle Earth, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. she she essentially you know her her soul is what Valerian I guess how would you say it? how I mean is that a well she's she's one of the Eldar, she's one of the Eldar, so she's from she's from Valinor. She's right. also she's also. Valinorian, her soul, you know, like I guess what I'm saying is she's not, you know, she she sees this world, this Middle Earth and and the cities around it. For she sees them as beautiful and worth protecting, even though she's not there, and even though she's not from there. I think that's really important. I think Mm -hmm. she becomes our eyes into the story here. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It was it was as I was working through the timeline, just sort of trying to pick up, you know, little tidbits to share. it's super interesting to notice that she is actually the only being alive on Middle Earth by the time of the Lord of the Rings who remembers the trees in Valinor, who remembers remembers heaven, remembers the elven mm-hmm. infancy. Even Elrond is nine hundred year only nine hundred years old, right? Uh, Elrond doesn't. Elrond was was born in Middle Earth. So I think that's that's instructive. I think that's instructive. I also, one of the things that bothered me when we first started watching, like in the first couple episodes, was how often she kept telling Elrond how old she was. And it was a little bit like, okay, so we cast this, you know, young, beautiful blonde as as Galadriel, and she doesn't have the like gravitas that Kate Blanchett had. And so we have to like emphasize over and over again how ancient she actually is. Otherwise, nobody will buy this. And like it felt a little cheap. But then if you actually look at the relationship between her and Elrond, like Elrond and his brother are born in the first age, year 532. At that point, Galadriel has already been alive for 800 years. I mean, she's significantly He's 100 older. years old, basically, in the show. More or less. Yeah. So what do you well, think of their no, relationship? He's, he's, he's got to be more than that, though, because 530, that's 60 years. He would be... By the time his brother dies, and, he's, and his brother died hundreds of years ago from when the show is set. He's already 500 years old. So in the time of the, the Rings of Power, the series, Elrond's already supposed to be more than a thousand years old. Okay. Okay. By the time Elrond she, is born, Galadriel is hundreds of years old already. Yeah. So she's supposed to be about twice as old as she is in the show. Yes. So they're playing. So they're definitely playing with that. So then given that, does, does it matter is my question. I don't know. Like you can say it's not true to the exact time frame that Tolkien casts, but does that matter when you're trying to tell the story that like he could have made that different? Yeah. So that, you know, that, that being such a big complaint to me is a little, I'm, I'm not sure that it matters. Like, I, I just don't Can you can still capture the spirit of something. Like we didn't know how old Gandalf was in, in, when you read the books. Right. I mean, but you, trying, I guess you do, but you don't, doesn't, doesn't matter. They're trying to compress two different stories though. We have the story of Galadriel and the elves, much of which takes place in the transition from her as a as a feisty, you know, leader of of armies, um, into being the Lady of Lothlorien, married to, married to Celebrim or uh, to um, 
shoot husband's name help me uh cello um Caliborn, thank you Caliborn. Yeah. um that that transition's already taken place long before numenor falls lothlorien's already been founded so um so what they're trying to do is say okay but we want to tell we want to tell the story we want the elves to be involved in this so we're going to tell this story from you know a thousand twelve hundred years earlier at the same time as the fall of Numenor, and it just compresses the timeline like this. And I don't think that really bothers me if the details of her story and her personality and her character are consistent with the story we're given, and mm-hmm. if the details of the fall of Numenor are consistent with the story that we're given. And so far, mm-hmm. they both are. Yeah. Well, I mean, how could you possibly like? There, there's no way for you to tell all these stories independent of one another and like them be thousands of years apart, right? No, that's part of the that's part of why Tolkien chose to write it as a as a cycle of myths that all right. orbit, you know, together and bump up against one another instead of a continuous narrative. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, we're talking about a lot of things that we actually are pretty enthusiastic about, or just want to defend in the face of. <laughs> the slings and arrows of the of the the dialogue online of the internet what do you think um what are you nervous about or do you flat dislike i think that dialogue has been a little shoddily written in places um and i'm worried i'm worried a little bit about whether over the course of a whole show the dialogue is going to fall kind of flat part of what made the films so wonderful is that they managed to sound just like him and they had this gravitas in the way that they spoke and the way these lines were written. And it was so delicately done. And um, so far in the show, we, we do have like the, uh, maybe the best critique I've seen is that we have, we're swinging wildly from like modern American English parlance into these archaic sentence constructions when someone needs to sound dramatic. And it sometimes is a little jarring. Um, that being said, there are some scenes where I think there are some really gorgeous lines that do hang together that, that um, do lend gravitas to the story. So it's not, I wouldn't say I despise the script thus far, but it's, it's a little rough. Well, that's one of those interesting things because, you know, if that's your, if your complaint is about the shifting between the different, you know, modes of speech, I can get that, but be very careful about doing that if they're not the same set of characters. Oh yeah. Like the hobbits, the Harfoot, and the elves and the men and the men from different places should all be speaking differently. And the elves in different places, like they should all be speaking with different dialects. That's the nature of language. Yeah. Um, so if everybody sounded the same, that would be just ridiculous. Um, the other thing that I would say is like this, the way people speak in movies has been a complicated and often fraught thing ever since they first started making movies that were like, vaguely medieval and yeah period days. pieces i mean people have always complained about you, know, you can go back to errol flynn robin hood and ivanhoe in the 40s and mm-hmm. you know uh, every every almost every like you know ben-hur at times and and the ten commandments and antony and cleopatra and the cleopatra movie with um elizabeth taylor and like they all have moments where you're like who that this is nonsense. This this dialogue is nonsense. It's a difficult thing to do because it feels so ostentatious. It feels so put on mm-hmm. when someone puts on some sandals and they put on a funny hat and a sword and a tunic, <laughs> um, and then they start trying to talk like a fancy person. You're just kind of like, this is silly, right? It's hard yeah. for it not to be silly. And so the 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 margin for error is very thin, yep. and it, it very rarely is pulled off a hundred percent consistently. So and yeah, yeah that's I mean, definitely like you said true. the movies are so good at capturing that 
And even there, there's a couple times, even when Aragorn speaks, for example, when I'm like, eh, I don't know about that line. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can uh, see it's about, hard to really about capture the the... All, all day. I don't think it's the most important thing going on in this situation, though. If, if you, th- I mean, I don't, I guess I just don't know what people expect. Yeah. What are, I mean, what yeah, are some yeah. of the, what are some of the criticisms like a, a you cringy. actually think hold water? Like, what, it, what are you apprehensive about, if anything? I don't know. Oh, also, I'm, I'm sorry. So much of it in the last. The last thing that I thought really didn't play is the riding riding horses on the beach thing. Oh yeah, I Morfid like Clark's face just frozen in some ghastly grin. Like that was that was terrible. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. I didn't understand that at all. I'll, there's so many things that I'm like I don't even know that I criticize it. There's just like questions that I want to see how they make it, how they pull it off. You know, uh, Elrond's visit to to the to to visit the dwarfs mm-hmm. um and the dwarf who's the who's the dwarf the dwarf king Durin. Um, Durin, yeah you know how are they gonna bring all that full circle and how and how are they gonna you know what's the tone of that gonna be and mm-hmm. you know is the tone of the dwarves gonna be just silly is it just gonna be like dwarvish fight club um, i don't i don't think they i don't think it will like i i agree i'm interested to see how they how they play that transition but they have it's got the transition's got to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, there's scenes like the elvish uh, night watchman guy. <laughs> yeah. And his, like, getting captured by the orcs and um, that kind of stuff is... I'm just reserving, you know... They're filling in gaps of story. They're they're finding places to make action. And it's this is not, to me, like... One of my biggest complaints of the movie is a big section in The Two Towers where they kind of... Peter Jackson brings in a bunch of stuff that's not in the books and it kind of like makes, it kind of bloats the movie a little bit, but he had, that was a complaint to me because there's more he can do. Like those are long books already. These people are trying to find, like they're creating action out of notes, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're doing a good job, like using what Tolkien did give them like the orcs, like some of these creatures. Um, Um, And they're not like creating new races of people or, you know, going super far afield on in the choices that they make. It's just, yeah, they're having to invent stuff. And usually it's for the sake of either comedy or action. Yep. And that's fine. That's the nature of adaptation. So for me, it's not so much a criticism of those things or praising those things as let's see how they shake out. That's yeah. how I feel about that. Let that be our watchword, man. Like honest to goodness, let's let's just let these guys finish their sentence before we jump yeah. down their throats and tell them they suck. Yeah. And and you and I, we're gonna go. I think we're going to see a little more towards complaints as we go through the show. And we're going to probably offer a little bit more of the things that we have questions about and wonder about the choices. And, and maybe we'll end up, you know, by the time the season ends, as I said earlier, maybe we'll be super upset and change our minds completely. But do you have anything else that you, like I said earlier, you've been going through it. You have been, <laughs> been having a hard time trying to get it off your chest. <laughs> um, do you, you want to add anything else before we go? Yeah, I think, and this is just something to chew on. Um, as we watch through this show, but one of the reasons that I think the outrage has been so widespread uh, against Galadriel in particular is that in our modern culture, we think about, we're more comfortable thinking about the way evil interacts with the world by putting it outside of the self. We say evil comes from outside and the extent to which a person is good is the extent to which they remain true to themselves and resist the evil that's trying to corrupt them from outside. And so to go back to the films, a Kate Blanchett, who is Galadriel in Lothlorien, 
maintaining the borders of her land, inside of which is moral order and peace, outside of which is oncoming evil. It's very palatable to us. Um, I got to say, um, I'm not actually, I don't actually care for the movies Galadriel. Like to me, it's one of the weakest parts of the whole movie. Uh, I like Kate Blanchett. I think she could have done well, but I think they make her a little bit stilted in a way that I don't think the book is. And so for me, like recreating Galadriel, Galadriel is kind of like, I like the idea of doing something new with her and kind of making yeah, her, so do giving I. her personality. That Galadriel is like, it's Kate Blanchett doing something. It's not a character. <laughs> but also she's I not think I might agree with you. I think I might agree with you. But the point I'm making is one about, is one about yeah, culture. Sorry. Side note. Which is that like, uh, that's not the culture Tolkien lived in. Or the one he was writing about. Yeah. For Tolkien, right. who is a who is a, a vital Catholic, a vital Christian, um, evil comes from inside the human heart. And so a, a Galadriel who is fallen is a Galadriel whose redemption can speak to us, can speak to the reader in words that yeah. they understand. Yeah, you you were texting me and you said something about how like what we're doing, so much of the criticism is making Tolkien into a trite moralist. Yeah. What did you yeah, mean? I by think that? that's true. I well, I it pertains to this very conversation. Um, one of the things that, that Tolkien is lauded for is a world of moral order. Um, people talk about Tolkien's moral imagination all the time. And and it's sure. true on the one hand that the Lord of the Rings and the attendant legendarium is this colossal struggle between good and evil. And and the evil yeah. is really, really dark, and the good is really, really pure. Right. And and that's one of the things that makes it such a heroic story, right? Um but also none of that would have worked in my, in my estimation, none of that would have, would have caused this to be a classic that sticks around, you know, 150 years later, 200 years later and, and on to the future, I would anticipate unless yeah. the characters that we're following were as flawed as, as we are. Um, the world is not actually a black and white place. It's a world full of shades of gray. The human experience is nuanced, impossibly nuanced. So nuanced, we can't really wrap our minds around the whole thing. And that isn't yeah. to say that we don't talk about good and evil, but it is to say that Tolkien isn't trying to reduce the world into black and white uh, in terms of, of, of evil and good. He's actually trying to demonstrate the ways in which uh, fallen beings achieve redemption. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, and that's true for literally all of his characters and not to put too fine a point on it, but y'all do realize Frodo fails, right? I know. I was just going to say that he does the fail whole point of the book. It's the yeah. whole point. And so if we turn to Tolkien the of the book, yeah. for emulable moral characteristics, we're doing something he didn't really want us doing. And I, I think his response in that letter is a really good way to think about this. He basically says, oh yeah, I suppose you're right. Yeah, I probably do owe some some of my imagination of Galadriel to Marian imagery and to my Catholic faith. And mm -hmm. yeah, that might be true. Um, but really the story I wanted to tell is the story of a penitent making their way towards redemption and reconciliation with their God. That second story is the one he set out to write. And it's the one that causes everyone to love the Lord of the Rings. Um, so that, that's one of the, the bees in yeah. my bonnet. I mean, and, and even Aragorn like makes some questionable decisions in the books where you're like, I don't know, that really worked out for you. Like, yeah. Um, and, and a hero to Tolkien is not the person who ultimately succeeds; is the person who is faithful in the face yes. of great obstacles. Yes. And even if those obstacles are are their own their own weaknesses, right? Their own shortcomings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And usually, you know, the the he has this he, characters are being consumed by themselves so often mm -hmm. in these books. Yeah, whether it's Gollum or 
you know, some of these characters Boromir. that are in this show, yeah, or yeah. Boromir, or yep. the, you know, this the story of the ring becomes very complicated. And that's why Galad what what's interesting about Galadriel is that we're getting the Galadriel that, that is currently and is about to be tested. Yeah. And she's not always going to do the right thing. And what makes her ultimately a, an emulatable character and this great powerful figure is that she learns from her mistakes. Yeah. And then is it rejects the thing that could make her most powerful. She eventually her rejection of the ring later on is the redemption of the mistakes that she made earlier. Exactly. And to and to, and, to fill in some of those but gaps. But she's like, faithful. Ultimately, but in the beginning, her entire activity and the activity of her of her race is the epitome of unfaithfulness. Um, right, right. They, they, they right. murder their they, kin. She learns faithfulness. Right, she learns, exactly. She learns faithfulness. They, they murder their kin. They backstab their own kind. And uh, then her after this kin slaying, this is the thing that kicks off all of the, the suffering and the whole cycle of the stories. There's this kin slaying that happens um, when her uncle, Fionor, um, leads a revolution against the Valar, right? The guardian angels. And Galadriel and her brothers follow him into this. And so does her father, actually follows his brother into this and they participate in the backstabbing and in the kin slaying. And then her father comes to a realization that this way lies death and turns back and goes back to the Valar and, and petitions for forgiveness and is welcomed back into, into his home in Valinor and crowned as King there. And Galadriel and her brothers tell him to screw off and follow their uncle instead. The very first act that she does as like a competent character who's leading anyone or providing any advice to anyone is to turn to her gods and tell them that she doesn't want or need them. That's that's the beginning of Galadriel's story. And everything we know about her comes after that. And so this is the Galadriel in the show is the Galadriel essentially living in the wake of that, right? Yes. She's living in the wake of that. The wars that that we flash back to, all of that comes as a direct result of she and her fellow elves rejection of the directives of their gods. Hmm. Um, so that's part of her bitterness, right? Is like the knowledge that, that she's done this to herself, which, I mean, I, I think they're doing a good job of painting that. Honestly, I think they're doing, a, they're doing a really good job of painting that. Yeah. One of the things that's, that that's not clear to the viewers, unless you really know the story is who's the good guy, who's the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And that's often true in the books as well. You know, whether it's um, the people of Gondor or, mm -hmm. it, you know, it's, you know, Boromir, you never really, you know, there's just so many characters where there's ambiguity of the ambiguity of their loyalties and ultimately it becomes, you know, their actions have consequences. <laughs> yeah, dude. They absolutely do. Um, and and she like in the show right now is living through like the 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 world of Middle Earth and Numenor and the elves are living in the wake of previous they're living in the wake of choices that they made, living with the consequences of the choices that they that, that they made. And the choices they're making now are what's going to lead to the future of of Middle Earth. The rings have not been made yet. I know. And it's, an, it's a really cool position for us as viewers to be in. If we could all just calm down enough to enjoy it, it's a really cool position. Or to just be see in. what happens if you're not enjoying it. Yeah, or just, or just see it. what happens because you actually, we actually know where this is going. Yeah. That's right. A, that's cool. That's a cool position right. to be in. Right. Yeah. Um, so exactly. I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm excited for them to connect these dots and, and to see, to see how they, how they handle the rest of this. 
Yeah, that's a great point. Part of what we're seeing here is we're seeing them connecting characters and, and ideas and myths that we love and that we've heard. And we're just getting to see how they're going to put them together like a puzzle and how they're going to guide, they're, how they're going to create uh, tunnels between different stories that Tolkien created. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what their job is, create tunnels using using seed like bricks that he created, but he didn't give them all of the bricks. Mm-mm. So they have to flesh out, you know, they have to make some more bricks so that they can, these tunnels are big enough to fit through Yep. Um, to, to actually merge these stories together. And like getting to see how they make those choices is just fun. I just find it really interesting. I don't think this is perfect, but I'm enjoying watching this creative process happening before our eyes. Yep. I mean, I know it's finished, but I'm watching them kind of reveal, unveil the the tunnel building that they're that they have been working on. So yeah. Um I'm just not I just refuse I'm just choosing not to be cynical about it, maybe. And I think a lot, a lot of people are just like cynical about the motives. And I totally understand that we're protective of Tolkien. We're protective of mm-hmm. people are protective of their political um their political stances. They're protective of their own defenses of the, yeah. the, the of the defenses that they've already put up in term in social issues. Um so I understand all of that. But I think that like having more Tolkien in the world and having, even if it's the seeds and the, you know, the broken bricks of Tolkien in the world, I think is actually a good thing. So yep, uh, I would agree. If, you know, if it points more people towards Tolkien, sweet. Yep. Yeah. I'm all into that. I'm all into that. I also, right. I, would, I have to, I have to, as a parting shot here, yeah, and I'm saying this to word. myself as much as anyone else. Um, I've been in so many conversations in various fandoms. Tolkien included. And one of the things that is very seductive and tempting is to cling to some piece of lore that you've dug up as though it's some kind of gnosis, um, as though it makes you an initiate and, um, and to basically create for yourself a high ground to stand on and create, create your own bona fides and then use those as a weapon to interact with, with people who are actually exactly like you, who love the same thing that you love. And um, I would just urge all of us to avoid that in this case, because like David was just saying, it's possible that something really, really beautiful has just entered the world. We don't know how they're going to finish it yet, but if they actually do succeed in what I'm satisfied is their aim, which is to bring us a Tolkien-esque story in as many of Tolkien's own words as they can dig up, um, that is a very good thing. So let's not marshal our bona fides and try and find some high ground to stand on. Let's just let down our defenses and go on a ride together through this, through this story. And we can, we can talk about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My nine-year-old, he's got some flaws. He's also a lot of fun. In 40 years, he might turn out to be a creep, but I don't know what's, I don't know what's going to turn out right now. So I'm not going to assume that the flaws are going to win out. <laughs> We're just going to do our best. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> I don't think he's, I don't, I don't think my nine-year-old's likely to be a creep, but <laughs> my um, nine-year-old seems like a pretty decent guy. He's got some flaws, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, we're all doing our best out here. Um, all right, Ian, this has been fun. <laughs> yeah, thank uh, you. in a couple of weeks we'll come back to talk about um, the next three episodes, unless something happens and we have to like do an emergency pod. Uh, it, <laughs> Which we reserve the right happen. to do an emergency <laughs> pod uh, after yeah. the next episode, or you know, if something something comes up, or if someone else writes a review of a show that they've never seen before, we might need to start, you know. Hewing some necks. Oh, yeah, we might have to start. Um, <laughs> uh, well, you know what? We're just going to ignore those people. <laughs> right on. Love it. Well, thanks all for right. having me. This is my right, friend. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. Talk to you soon. 